Come, Holy Spirit, our hearts inspire. Amen. Uh, I once uh, led a chapel service at a, a like a long-term uh, care facility um, with some regularity, and there was a, a man there who would often repeat uh, the line about God did not come to Elijah in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire, but in the still small voice. Like every time I saw him, once a week or so, for some reason at this chapel service, he would repeat that, and I got the sense that he was trying to make a point about a sort of quietist or pietistic spirituality, that if we could just sit still and get spiritual, God will come to us. And then one day, finally, I responded, well, what do you make of Pentecost? (laughs) What do you make of Pentecost where uh, in every other time that uh, God speaks in the Bible, where he doesn't come in the still and and the quiet, I think he ignored me. uh, you know, that's just the one place in the Bible where it gives you this impression of God speaking in the quiet and it had something to do with Elijah's particular uh, predicament. Uh, but today we have Pentecost, which is captured, as Zach said, in chapter 2 of Acts. Uh, and uh, our reading today is just a portion of uh, chapter 2. And we see uh, that just about a week after Christ's ascension, uh, which we celebrated last week, uh, the disciples, and, and now it's about 120 of them, we learn in Acts chapter 1, uh, were again in the upper room. Remember, this is the place where they're often scaredy cats, and they're locked up in this space again, 120 of them, after the ascension, after Christ has promised the gift of the Holy Spirit, and suddenly, uh, God, by means of the Holy Spirit, came to them noisily, Uh, You could hear it uh, as if a wind, a sound like a mighty rushing wind with power and force and commotion and disruption and interruption. God comes uh, by the Holy Spirit and fills the place, and not only that, fills them uh, with his Holy Spirit. And this is uh, so miraculous that it appeared as if they are on fire. Uh, And the effect was to allow the disciples to speak the gospel in foreign languages. After they received the Holy Spirit, miraculously, they're able to speak in foreign tongues that they had never spoken before. I mean, wouldn't that be nice to all of a sudden be able to speak Japanese, you know, or a difficult language like that to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who were also uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, Acts 2 is a is a gathering of Jews at this point, uh, not Gentiles. These, these were people from uh, many foreign nations, but these are the diaspora of the Jews coming to Jerusalem uh, for Pentecost, and uh, so that's why they don't all speak the same language. Uh, but that's an important point, that this, at this point, the, the 120 and the 3,000 converts and the even more than those 3,000 who are there, who are attracted to what's happening, are all Jewish at this point. Uh, and the, the sound of the wind caught their attention and drew the thousands to the 120 uh, who say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Uh, we can understand this. This is in a language that we can understand. And the purpose, therefore, was to communicate uh, that good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, and there were two reactions from the crowd at this point, once this happens. Uh, First, some say, uh, it says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? What's going on here? They're curious and they want to hear more. They want to know more about what's going on. But others uh, are mocking and said they're filled with new wine. That is to say, they must be drunk. They must be out of their mind 
these guys look to be tweaking on drugs. I don't understand what's going on here. This is crazy. And Peter uh, goes on to explain that they are not out of their minds. They're not drunk. Rather, uh, in their sight is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy uh, that God would give the gift of his spirit for the sake of the gospel. And so that's that, uh, that portion that we have here that says, this is from Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Basically saying, this promise is now fulfilled in their seeing. Uh, the thing that was said long ago through Joel is now happening right here uh, in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2 is Peter's explanation. Uh, and finally, this is uh, not seen in our, our excerpt that we have today, but if you read on in Acts chapter 2, you see in that passage, Peter goes on to bear witness to the resurrected Christ. And as a result of this, 3,000 repent and are baptized and begin to live in community together around this message. In other words, this is a revival. What's happening here is a revival by the Holy Spirit, and uh, this revival created a movement of people in response to the message that they're now hearing in their own languages, and it went on as a result. This community now gathering around this message uh, draws attention to itself in order to bear witness to Jesus Christ and it completely changed the course of human history. I mean, even to this day, that's why you're here today. Uh, and sometimes the Holy Spirit touches down like this, uh, not just in Pentecost. We've seen this throughout church history, where the Holy Spirit seems to touch down in a particular time and place and seems to create revival movements for the sake of people uh, being converted to the message about uh, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Uh, one example of this that's often captured my attention is the f what we call the First Great Awakening, revival movement uh, several hundred years ago in England and in the United States. And the most well-known leaders from that era were uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, George, Whit George Whitfield, and the Wesleys, uh, Ch Charles and John Wesley. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, you might know this, his most famous sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the result of this, center, this, uh, this sermon that uh, kicked off this first great awakening was just exactly that. It awoke people uh, to the reality of God's wrath and his answer to it in Jesus Christ. Uh, it was basically a sermon on justification by faith through grace. Uh, it has a bad rap because of its name, and people don't like to hear about sinners these days, but it's a very good reformational sermon about justification. And this kicked off a revival movement, this similar theology that we preach here at the Advent. It had uh, an effect basically of, of converting nominal Christians. The people in his audience were not, uh, for the most part, people who didn't identify as Christian. They, were, they for the most part, did identify as Christian. But the, the sermon had the effect to awake, by the power of the Holy Spirit, nominal Christians uh, and while he was preaching this particular sermon, he was interrupted many times before finishing it by people who were crying out, what shall we do to be saved? He couldn't even finish it uninterrupted. 
And Edwards ends the sermon with a final appeal when he says, Therefore, let everyone that is uh, out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. Anyone who is out of Christ in my hearing now awake uh, to this message. But my most favorite preacher from the first uh, Great Awakening is George Whitfield. Um, he was an, get this, he was an Anglican Calvinist Methodist uh, clergyman from England. I mean, those don't exist anymore. Uh, he was, uh, if you know what that means, uh, he was uh, like, like me, an Anglican clergyman. Uh, but he was from England and he traveled up and down the entire East Coast. Everywhere I've lived on the East Coast, George Whitfield has been. <laughs> Even in Milford, Connecticut, where I once served, George Whitfield was there and preached to people outside. Have you even, ever even heard of Milford, Connecticut? Uh, and uh, coastal South Carolina and Georgia, where he lived for a, a time and started an orphanage. But he had a reputation for drawing massive crowds. Anywhere from uh, 5,000 people to the largest guesstimate was 80,000 people coming out to hear George Whitfield uh, preach. Does that even happen? I went to a papal mass at the Washington Nationals Stadium. I snuck in. I'm not a Roman Catholic. I don't even think there were 80,000 people there for that. Although it was a moving experience when the Pope, this was the previous Pope Benedict, said, the Lord be with you. And thousands of people said, and also with you. It was, I mean, it was tremendous to hear thousands of people say that. But anyway, that's a side note. George Whitfield preached to even more people than Peter preached at Pentecost. And Pope Benedict preached at the stadium in Washington, D.C. because he had this oratory ability without a microphone to project his voice so that thousands of people could hear what he had to say without amplification. As a matter of fact, Benjamin Franklin, who was a friend of his, he, he was his... American publisher who published his sermons uh, in here in North America, Ben Franklin did a little study to test, based on square footage and distance, how many people could hear in a gathering a sermon uh, with complete audibility by, uh, by Whitfield. And also, I must say that as a Methodist, uh, Whitfield was uh, concerned about the ensuing life of discipleship of those who were converted. He wasn't just a guy who wanted to come in town with a blaze of glory and impress people that would faint and have a liver shiver and then move on. He was actually worried about not only their conversion, but their, their future life of discipleship. Uh, and Edwards and Whitfield were also uh, concerned with the conversion of nominal believers. As I said with about Edwards, uh, the, the idea of awakening this is uh, directly from Edwards' language in his uh, sermon, this idea of waking up. Uh, during the, the revivals, nominal Christians realized that they were unconverted, that people who were identified as Christian realized that their hearts were not yet changed until they heard this message of the gospel. And as a result, these people were, uh, are overwhelmed by the sense that God loves them and is present in their lives, which was previously unknown to them until that moment. And the response is often a repentance from uh, previous uh, idolatry and a, they, a, a newfound commitment to discipleship. And finally, uh, non-members of the community are often attracted by such movements, that not only are the nominal Christians uh, 
converted during revival that people outside of the community say, what is going on here? And this is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. This is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. It's a lot like a sort of first great awakening, but it was the first great awakening. It was the real first great awakening. And after uh, this happens, we read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Remember that my first point about uh, revival, though, is that sleepy nominal Christians must realize that they are unconverted and must experience rebirth and awakening. Uh, that's exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 2 with Peter. He's preaching to the Jews. He's not preaching to the Gentiles yet. He's saying, you thought you knew who God truly was, but let me tell you about what God has done through Jesus Christ. And awakens 3,000 of them to a newfound faith. I mentioned uh, George Whitfield, and uh, he himself experienced conversion. He was a nominal Christian until in college, uh, he was a friend with the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley. And you might not know this, but uh, John and Charles Wesley had a, a fantastic mother, Susanna, and she gave George Whitfield a book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man by a name called by the name of uh, by a guy by the name of Henry Skugel, isn't that a great name? Uh, this little uh, uh, book that Whitfield read, and after he read it, while he was a college student, a nominal Christian said, "I must be born again or be damned." I never knew what true religion was till God sent me this excellent treatise. In other words, he converted, and all, all, even though beforehand he was a so-called Christian. Let's see if what Henry School talks about here describes you. He says uh, most famously in one line, I cannot speak of religion, but I must lament that among so many pretenders to it, so few understand what it means. And uh, he has this sort of uh, threefold point about uh, what he says religion is not. It's not these three things, but people often confuse it with. He says, uh, religion does not reside in, number one, theological correctness or mere intellectualism. You know, I know the dogma. I know the doctrine up here. He says true religion doesn't reside merely there. Or number two, moralistic reductionism. Or you could call this mere performancism. That religion isn't based on w merely what I do to earn God's favor. Or number three, he says it doesn't reside in affectional emotionalism. Uh, or you could call this merely sort of mysticism or piety. Remember my friend at the chapel, God comes through the still small voice. You know, if I could just sit quietly and pray here, this is where I will find true religion. Rather, Skugel says true religion resides in, I quote here, a union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature the very image of God drawn upon the soul. Or in the apostles' phrase, it is Christ formed 
within us. In other words, it's a total heart change. The concern is not with those other three things, but with matters of the heart. And this is created by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And it must be spurred on by the proclaimed Word of God. In whatever shape, whether that's a sermon by someone like Peter or a little book by a guy named Henry Skugel, the Holy Spirit uh, works through the proclaimed Word of God so that we might see Jesus. If you are a nominal Christian, I bid you to wake up to the reality of God. And if you are a convert to true religion, join me in a revival movement. Um, I'll be honest with you, that's my dream for us. That's my dream for the Cathedral Church of the Advent. That's my dream for the 5 o'clock service. That's my dream for the city of Birmingham. That's my dream for the region of central Alabama, the state of Alabama, and the United States of America is uh, revival. And you know, the attendance of the 5 o'clock service lately, when people have asked me, how many people are coming to the 5 o'clock? I usually say lately, the last couple of months, on average, like 120 people. Isn't that funny? That's the same number of people that were in Acts chapter 2 uh, when the, the Holy Spirit descended and worked in their lives, and 3,000 people saw it and converted to the faith. And what does that tell me? That the 120 or so of us in this room have the potential of reaching 3,000 people, and therefore the world. Uh, if nominal Christians would just wake up to the real news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that means for our life and salvation. So pray that the Holy Spirit would bring revival to us and to our community. Uh, the final verse from our passage today, which is the end of the excerpt that uh, Peter quotes from Joel, is, uh, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, uh, anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. Friends, call upon his name. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Call upon uh, the Holy Spirit and beg him to inspire our hearts with power, with noise. Uh, uh, beg him to inspire the hearts of your loved ones. Beg him to inspire the hearts of your neighbors. Beg him to inspire the hearts of the people of Birmingham. Peter ends his sermon, uh, we don't have this in our passage again today, but it's at the end of Acts chapter 2 when he says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Believe in this promise for you and for your children or your loved ones and for everyone. Repent in the name of Jesus Christ and have reassurance that God indeed loves you and that the transformation of a city and a crooked generation can start with one person waking up to this belief. Just think of George Whitfield in his college dorm room reading a little book by a, name, by a guy named Henry Skugel and we're still talking about him today. May there be a great awakening among us. Amen.